Welcome to our small group series, The Life of Moses. If you're interested in joining a small group, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Join us as we explore Life of Moses, the story of the Lord drawing his people out of slavery and into a relationship with him. It's cool. Hey, last week um, we had a seminar on immigration after the service. We had about 150 people come Sunday morning, about 50 people come Saturday night. Uh, Denise Chang just did a fabulous job. Um, that whole presentation is on the website. So if you weren't able to come, yeah, um, you can go there and listen to it. The recording actually came out really well. And it's just a great way to be informed. If you want the handouts, I think there may be a link to the handouts as well on the web. So anyway, a number of years ago, uh, lady named Karen Watson decided she wanted to uh, go to Iraq as a missionary to do humanitarian work in the name of Jesus Christ. Before she left, she wrote a letter to her pastor and told him that he could only open it if she died. Well, a couple of years later, she was killed by the very people she had gone to help. And uh, the pastor opened the letter, and the first line of the letter was, I know you're only reading this if I died. She then said some remarks to her family and some remarks to her church and blessed them. And then the last line of the letter said this, obedience was my objective, suffering was to be expected, but my reward is his glory. Uh, Karen was a person who was motivated by the glory of God. The glory of God is simply a word that describes God's essence, in a sense, his presence. And she knew that if she was to die, she would uh, be in the midst of God's glory. And that fulfilled her desire. I think that desire to see God's glory is a desire that we find in Moses. I think it's a desire that we all have in some way to experience more of the presence of God in our lives. In fact, there was a survey a number of years ago of people who had left church and had got disenchanted with church and they were asking them, what, what would it take to get you to come back? And the number one response was that if there was a church that would really help them experience the reality of God in their lives in a deep way, they'd return. I think that reflects a deep need, desire in our own lives, a desire to experience the reality of God in our lives. I want to talk about that this morning. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 33 and 34. This is really a second part of a two-part message. Last week, Paul did just a fabulous job. Uh, Exodus 32, that's where Moses goes up on the mountain of Sinai uh, to get instructions for the tabernacle. Why he's up there, the people think he's gone for good, so they build this calf uh, to be an intermediary for them to God. They break the second commandment. Moses calls it a great sin, uh, and God gets ticked. Uh, Moses comes down, breaks the Ten Commandments, which symbolizes the breaking of the covenant, and uh, 
Israel faces God's discipline. 3,000 of them are killed. Those who don't repent, a plague goes through the camp. And they begin to suffer the consequences of their disobedience. And the biggest consequence is that they lose the presence of God in their midst. It's interesting, in chapter 33, verses 1 through 7, you discover that God is still going to keep his end of the deal he made with them, his end of the covenant. They're still going to get the promised land, and all the enemies are going to be kicked out. They're going to get economic success and political success and military success, but they're not going to have God go with them, and that destroys them, and it causes them to repent. We pick up the story in verse uh, 7. And we're looking at a conversation uh, of Moses with God about restoring God's presence to the people. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Now remember, Moses had gone up on the mountain. He was getting instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this, this tent that was going to be placed in the middle of the camp. And, and in that tent was the Holy of Holies. And it was the place, the tabernacle was the place where God himself was going to manifest his presence. But notice when we pick up the story, they just get... Uh, a sad substitute for the tabernacle. It's called the tent of the meeting. And it's not in the middle of the camp, right? It's on the outside of the camp. Just a physical representation of the reality that has happened. God, uh, uh, there's still God's people. They're still in covenant with him. God is still gonna make good on his part of the deal. But they no longer have his, his immediate presence in their midst. Just one thing to put in the back of your mind here, and we'll come back to this. Disobedience always causes a relational rift between us and God. Sin will always create a distance between God and us. Sin will always disconnect us from God. Doesn't mean we cease to be his people, It just means that our experience of his reality in our life becomes less. What do we do with that? Well, anyway, Moses sets up the tent. And anyone inquiring the Lord would go to the tent meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of the cloud would come down and stay at the entrance why the Lord spoke with Moses. Now, in some ways, they got the kind of religion a lot of people would like to have. And that is, you get all the benefits, right? You get the success and the blessings, all the good stuff, but God isn't in the middle of things. And some people like not having God in the middle of things because God messes with you when he is. He makes demands. He wants things to change. I think sometimes what we like is we want God, well, not in our life, but attached to our life. We kind of sometimes like him on the outside of the camp, right? Because then we get all the bennies, but we don't have to put up with his intrusions. And and if uh, a crisis comes, we get in trouble, there's an emergency, oh, we can go see him. 
And not only do they get God in the outside, but they get a religious official, a representative to go and interact with God on their behalf. Representative religion. They get all the benefits, none of the hassle, and they get somebody to take care of the religious stuff. I think a lot of Americans like that kind of religion. And sometimes we like that kind of religion. But Moses' experience of God and his interaction with God is very different. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance to their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. As one speaks to a friend, then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. This word in the Hebrew for face is panim. It literally means face, but it's used in a metaphorical way, and it is used to talk about God's presence. In fact, later on in this passage in chapter 33, the word appears again, but it's translated as his presence. Uh, Moses had this experiential relationship with God where he actually talked with him face to face. And the notion, the reason they use face to describe present is it implies relationship. In other words, when you talk to somebody, you don't, you don't, you don't look at their elbow, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you don't look at the floor. You, you look at their face because you want to connect. And that's the implication here. Moses is having this, this relationship with God where he experiences in very concrete ways the reality of God. Now, I spent the last two weeks wrestling with this, this notion of God's presence and what does that really mean? And I've talked to seminary profs, and I've talked to seminary students, and I've talked to my son who thinks he's really wise theologically. <laughs> and he was actually really helpful. He actually is pretty smart. Um, to other staff to try to figure out what, what does it really mean to experience the presence of God in our lives. It was really interesting. Nobody had a really thought through answer. It's just something we oftentimes assume without really having much of a framework. So I've spent some time trying to come up with just some, some observations about the presence of God, all right? I'm not going to die for these, and, and, and you might not agree with them. I'm not sure I agree with them all, but it's kind of where, where I'm at at the moment, okay? First thing, uh, there is a difference between God's manifest presence and God's omnipresence. Uh, uh, God's omnipresence is God's everywhere presence. We say that God is, is omnipresent, and he is in his creation. He's separate from it, but there's a sense in which he is presence everywhere all the time. That's his omnipresence. But there is a difference when you begin talking about his manifest presence. That's when God's presence becomes more concrete and more experiential. And, and with Moses, it's very objective, in other words, it's an experience. It's not mystical. It's not subjective. It's not just emotional. It actually is outside of him. He's experiencing realities apart from his mental state that are actually happening in the real world outside of him. Um, and, and 
at this point, Israel's experience of God is the same. They, they see this cloud, they hear the lightning, they hear the trumpet, they hear God speaking. And when God speaks to them, the people of Israel and to Moses actually move sound waves and they hit his ear. It's, it's taking place in concrete reality. This is not just a subjective internal experience of God's presence. And what you discover with God's uh, uh, manifest presence is that there's degrees. If you go through the book of of Exodus, you discover that that different people have different degrees of the experience of God's presence. So in chapter three, Moses sees God as this flame in a bush. In, In chapter 13, the people of God see God as this cloud that leads their camp uh, and their, their march during the day and this pillar of fire at night. In, in, in chapter 16, the whole nation sees a vision of the glory of God at a distance, which is probably a manifestation of God in human form some way that's uh, a fire. That's how that notion of glory gets played out in other places. Um, but, but then Moses, his experience becomes more immediate. He, he sees God face to face. And later on in this passage, he's going to say, I want more. I want to see your glory. In other words, I want to see your essence. And what he ends up seeing is his back. And you, you begin to understand that there's degrees of the experience of God. And, and Moses experiences him as deeply and, and experientially as almost anyone we know of. In fact, that's... My second point is that uh, Moses' experience is unique. Deuteronomy 34.10. Since then, no prophet has risen in, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Uh, um, nobody else got that kind of experience. Now, I want you to wrestle with that a little bit because I think sometimes we read Moses' experiences that he got to talk to God face-to-face and go out in the tent and manifest it in, in amazing ways, and that's what we want. But understand this, that's not necessarily what we're gonna get. That was unique for Moses in that day. And in fact, you don't see anybody else in Scripture having that kind of immediate access to the experience of God's presence other than Jesus. Moses is absolutely unique. In fact, I would argue that our experience of the presence of God will always be somewhat fuzzy, subtle, uh, imprecise, uh, not nearly as clear or vibrant or objective as we'd like it to be. Uh, look with me at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. This comes at the end of the love chapter, and he's uh, talking about what's coming for us eventually. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. In other words, there's going to come a time where we get to experience God like Moses did, in fact, beyond what Moses did. If you go to Revelation, you, you, you understand that the ultimate end is that we live in the city where God dwells. 
and we get to experience his, his essence fully. That, that is coming, but it's not now. We shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. But right now, how do we see it? As a reflection in a mirror. What happens is when we read that, we think that mirrors in that day were like mirrors in our day that you can look and you see almost exactly uh, what the, in the reflection what is the reality is. But mirrors in that day were made of bronze and they would polish them. And even when they were highly polished, the, uh, the image you got was fuzzy. It was not precise. It was all, always uh, a few steps removed from the ultimate reality. And that, I think, is typical of our experience of the presence of God in our lives. In fact, I think oftentimes uh, our experience of God becomes mediated or, or is indirect. That happened with Israel, right? When they set up the tabernacle, God filled the temple, the Holy of Holy, with his presence. But they didn't have direct access to that. In fact, that was the point of the tabernacle was to show them the holiness demanded to be in the very presence of God. And their experience of God became mediated through the temple and all the sacrifices and the ritual that went into that. I think for us in the New Testament, our experience of God is mediated by two things. First of all, God's word. God's word is living and active and powerful and it's used by the spirit to, to change us in a sense in, in some way that's hard for us to describe. When, when you immerse yourself in God's word, uh, uh, the truth of it, you're experiencing part of God's presence in your life. It's mediated, it's indirect, but he's at work. I think the other way the, 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 the presence of God gets mediated, and I don't think we think of this very often, but is through his body, the church, his community. Right, because what is his community? It is the body of Christ. We are his hands and feet, active in the world, doing his bidding, advancing his kingdom. So when we encounter his community, his people, and we become part of that, we're experiencing the presence of God, even though it's fuzzy. I, I know we don't think of that, but that's actually what's happening when we're in community, church, when we worship when we serve together corporately, that's part of the experience of God's presence. Now, the last thing, wait, go back one. <laughs> and this is key. We have the presence of the Spirit in us, okay? This is what distinguishes from most of what happens in the Old Testament. The Spirit manifests in the Old Testament and empowers people. But when we become believers, God's presence actually indwells us through his spirit. So his spirit becomes part of us. Um, and what does his spirit do? Primarily his spirit empowers us. The spirit of God is a person, but it's the active energy of God that makes God's agenda come to reality in our world. So when the spirit is in us, primarily the spirit works God's will in us and, and works through us to accomplish his will in the world. So it empowers us. It, it transforms us, produces the fruit of the spirit. The, the, the spirit also comforts us and convicts us. And at times Romans eight says that bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
But almost all of that is indirect. Most of our experience with the, the Holy Spirit isn't objective outside of us. And don't mishear me. I think at times that there's prophetic gifts and the gift of tongues and there's miracles and there's healings and the spirit manifests in some objective ways outside of us. I think that happens. I'm not discounting that, but I think most of our experience is more internal um, and often fuzzy. And I think sometimes we get confused. We think... And I think we have to be careful with this because we think if I have an intuition or a thought or I like hear God's voice, that must be God speaking. And hear me well, God can and sometimes does that thing. But because our experience of God is mediated through his body and his word, we need to be careful about those things that happen internally before we assume that's automatically God speaking. Now, let me say this real carefully. I think it's, it's perhaps not the wisest thing to take the internal dialogue that you have in your mind and assume that that's God speaking to you. Right? God is not going to have a conversational relationship with us inside our mind as he did with Moses. That was unique. I'm not saying that at times God doesn't speak to us. I'm not saying that at times he doesn't direct us that way. But I am saying when that happens, he gives us some very clear instruction about what we're supposed to do. Um, 1 John 4, 1. John writes, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, when you think that God's speaking to you, he may be, but, but with that thought, you gotta put in a healthy dose of discernment, all right? You gotta weigh that thought up against God's, uh, put that thought up against God's word, and you need to explore that thought, what you think you're hearing from God with God's body. That's what it means to have discernment. Now, the reason I'm harping on that is I deal pastorally with the downside of this notion that God speaks to me. Because God comes, oh God, people come into my office and they want divorce and they're really frustrated and angry because they really believe God told me to marry that person. And now it's a mess. And I'm thinking, you know what? I'm not sure God told you to marry anybody. In scripture, you're given the choice to marry as long as they're a believer. A whole other discussion. <laughs> but I get people who make foolish decisions because they think God spoke to them, and really, he didn't. They're just making dumb decisions. But the nice thing of saying God told me is I get off the hook. Yeah. Okay? Where really, when you think God's speaking to you, that's great. Sometimes he does, but now you've got to weigh that against what? His people and his word. So, this whole transition... Stepping down from being the lead pastor. Some of that came out of circumstances, but some of it came from a sense I had inside myself that it was time. And I thought, you know, it's just God's voice speaking to me. I thought it might be. But I didn't go the next day and tell the elders, I'm done. You know what I did? I said, I, I need to test this. So I began to talk to people who know me well. 
People I respect, people who are spiritually mature. I began to weigh it up against the scriptures. And uh, I even talked with some of the elders about it and some of the staff about it. And it was this process over the course of a month or two before I thought, you know, I think this is the right thing to do. And by the way, I think I had freedom either to step down or not step down because I think God gives us that kind of freedom and expects us to make wise choices. But I think he was prompting some of that. But I came to that conclusion after I pushed it up against God's word and God's people. Okay? I think we do have the presence of God in us, but it's very fuzzy. So use discernment. Okay. Back to this conversation that Moses has with God. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you and remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And it sounds like Moses gets exactly what he wants. But what you want to notice here, go back one second. Um, This you here is singular. And what God is saying to Moses, I'm gonna go with you, Moses. But notice how Moses responds. Then Moses said to him, look, if your presence does not go with us, Moses isn't simply concerned about his experience, the presence of God, he's concerned about the fact that the people experience the presence of God. Do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us. And notice this, what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Notice what Moses is saying. He's saying what makes us, God's people, distinct is that people outside can see in us the manifested presence of God. Now here, here, normally when we want God's presence, number one, we want it individually. I want to experience God's presence because I want this emotional feel-good experience. Nothing wrong with that. But, but Moses is saying that's really not the end game. The end game is that God manifests his presence, not simply in me, but in us as his community. And what's really important is not that I have this emotional feel-good experience. What's really important is that the world out there Recognize the fact that in here, in this community, God is present. In other words, what's really important about God's presence is that the outside world sees it in us, his people. And that's what should concern us. That the world out there can look at his church and say, wow, look at the way they love one another. Look at the way they serve one another. Look at what their priorities are. Look at what their values are. Look at how they care for the poor and the oppressed and how they function in this world. They couldn't do that unless God was in their midst. And that's the kind of presence that Moses is praying for. Okay? Now, but then it goes deeper. So that's for the people. Now Moses turns his attention to his own experience because he still wants more of God. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Moses has lots of chutzpah, okay? 
You're thinking, wait, wait, Moses, you get to talk to him face to face. You get to see him. Anytime you go into the, you mean that's not enough? And Moses says, uh-uh. I want more. And, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will claim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. And here he's talking about his glory face. In other words, glory is getting deeper than just this, this experience of conversation. Glory is getting to see the very essence of God. And God is saying, I can't show you that. Why? Because God is transcendent and infinite, and Moses is finite. And because we're finite and God's infinite, we will never see him in his complete glory until the other side. It's not possible. The finite cannot comprehend the infinite. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Um, So let's see what his experience is. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And God is saying, okay, Moses, I'll give you more, but you don't get the whole shebang. So what do we learn from this? Let me give you three things. Uh, um, that I think help us, in fact, are necessary for us to reconnect with God and experience his presence in our life, especially when distance has grown uh, uh, between us and him. First, we gotta want him. I mean, what's interesting about this passage is Israel, even though, though they they made this idol, they made the idol in order to connect with God. They were just going about it the wrong way. In their hearts, what they want is more of God. And what Moses wants is is more of God. And the reason that is true, and I think Augustine put it well, he said uh, that that we have been created with a God-shaped vacuum inside of us, and we are never satisfied until that vacuum is filled up. (laughs) And really this notion of knowing God and being connected to him and experiencing him, even though it's fuzzy in our lives, is at the heart of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Look at John 17, 3. When we come to, to Jesus, what we get is eternal life. But notice what eternal life is. He says here, for you granted him authority. Uh, uh, Jesus is praying to God. He says, for you granted him, that's Jesus, authority over all people, that Jesus might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. In other words, all the Father gives Jesus, Jesus gives eternal life, right? But notice, then he defines eternal life. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what you get. That's what eternal life is. It's not living in heaven forever. Eternal life is knowing God and connecting with him and having this relationship. And you see, that's the way we were wired and designed. That's what's really going on in the midst of our desires. Sometimes, though, we we get our loves or our desires disordered. 
And sometimes we have to step back and remember what we really want in life, ultimately, if we can drill down far enough, is God. So next time you go to the refrigerator and you know you shouldn't, you've already eaten too much, but you just have this hankering, this desire, you gotta eat more, you gotta step back and say, you know, quite honestly, if I really drill down, what I want is him, not food. If you go home and you're cracking open the bottle and you're thinking to yourself, I'm just gonna have one more, what you're really trying to do is fill up an emptiness inside you. And honestly, that emptiness isn't for more drink. That emptiness is for God. Sometimes you just need to step back. If you're hooking up and you're saying to yourself, you know, I don't understand why I do this. Let me tell you why you do this. Is There's a God-shaped vacuum in your life. You're trying to fill it in the wrong ways. And you think if you have a momentary time of pleasure and connection that that will take care of the hole in your soul and what you discover again and again and again is it doesn't. When you're sitting down and yank out your phone and you start to go places you shouldn't or you're on your computer and you start to look at websites you shouldn't, you need to step back and say, you know, what, what I, I think I want isn't what I really need. What I really want, what I'm really trying to do is fill up an emptiness inside me. Because we are designed to know God. And until that need for him gets satisfied, we try to find uh, the satisfaction and the need in all other kinds of places. Second, we need to understand him. If you go into chapter 34, um, it's the place where the covenant is renewed. Uh, they get the Ten Commandments again, and they get instructions on how to fulfill the covenant. But in the midst of this, this happens. So Moses chills out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name to the Lord. And proclaiming his name is revealing his character. But notice God's character. Really interesting. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintain love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That verse is known as the 13 attributes of God's mercy. Judaism takes that verse and uses it in all kinds of their rituals. When, when they celebrate the Feast of Weeks, when they celebrate the High Holy Days, they will say that. They always say it corporately. You can't say it individually, it has to be corporate. But they're manifesting the reality that God is compassionate and gracious and loving. And they do that because they wanna experience his forgiveness and they wanna be drawn into his presence. And God's love and grace is what draws us into his presence, right? But what's fascinating to me is they don't quote the rest of the verse. Because notice what it says. He's compassionate, loving, gracious, forgives, etc. yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Oh, wait. He punishes the children and their children of the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. In other words, he goes after the seed planted in families that cause it to sin to try to root it out. And you go, oh, well, now I'm not so sure I wanna be around that kind of God. But actually you do. 
That's the nature of God. And what it does is it puts us in this tension. On the one hand, God is gracious and compassionate and loving and forgiving. And on the other hand, God is holy and just and punishes sin. And that's the reality of who he is. And we live in the midst of that tension. And honestly, that tension is a great place to live. Now, I know what happens in our, our, our current Christian culture. We, we talk about his grace and love, and we don't talk much about his holiness and punishment of sin. But we need both. Because his love draws us to him. And his holiness and justice pushes us towards his love. In other words, both of those things motivate us to be more and more obedient. And that's the third thing. If you want God's presence in your life, you've got to obey him. Chapter 34 is the, the, the renewal of the covenant. They get the Ten Commandments. That's moral obedience. And then they get instructions about how they're to worship God and live uh, in these rituals, and it's ritual obedience. Moral obedience impacts our connection with God. The more obedient we are, the more likely we are to connect more deeply and intimately with God. Matthew 5, 8 says, um, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And there's actually a, a spiral of intimacy. You see this in John 14, 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. In other words, obedience is how you manifest your love for God. It's not this emotional thing that's part of it, but it's more comprehensive in terms of actually doing what God tells you to do and what Jesus tells you to do. If you love him, you keep his commands. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Show means make known, reveal, make clear. Obedience leads to God revealing more and more of himself to us. And what's interesting is the more he reveals to himself, the more we understand of what he requires of us and the more obedient we can be. And the more obedient we can be, the more he reveals to us. And the more he reveals, the more... Do you, do you see the cycle and over time, you get more and more connected to God. That's the moral obedience. But then there's also the ritual obedience. Uh, uh, Israel was to celebrate these festivals. And they get outlined in chapter 34. And the festivals were a way of reminding them of who God was and what God had done and who they were. And they were a way of kind of integrating God into their life. I think we have to practice ritual obedience. Uh, ritual obedience is worshiping together. Ritual obedience is reading the scriptures. Ritual obedience is the disciplines that we institute, sometimes fasting, uh, sometimes repentance, sometimes solitude. Ritual obedience is a way of marinating ourselves in Jesus. And over time, it makes a difference. Now, here's the bottom line, folks. If we want him understand him and obey him, we get closer to him and he gets closer to us and that changes us. It changed Moses. 
Chapter 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. You see, that's the point of the presence of God. It's not this emotional experience, but this transformative relationship. The way you know that you've experienced God in your life is that he's changed you. And as he changes you, he changes us. You know, we go to this passage and we primarily apply it individually, but it's corporate. And sometimes I think we need to say, not only do I need more of the experience of God in my life, but we as Waterstone need more of the experience of God in our life so that he changes us as his church and transforms us so that the world out there can see the manifested presence of God in here as we are his church in this place for his glory and his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to desire more of you, to understand you, to obey you. Lord, help us as Waterstone, your people in this place, be radically altered because you're at work in us, because this is the place and this is the people in which your spirit dwells. May you change us from the inside out so that the world may see the reality of God. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake and all God's people said. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.